This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Today, we have a special episode to cover some topics of tomorrow. We asked a few of our guests their predictions for U.S. government technology in 2022. First, we have Willie Hicks, public sector CTO at Dynatrace. The AI arms race. Mm. Um, will you talk about that a little bit and talk about where you see the U.S.'s position in the AI arms race? And I know this ties into the massive report, National Security Commission's on Artificial Intelligence final report. I, I think that's part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny because um, the term AI arms race is is actually kind of in academia and industry. It's kind of a debated term. Are we in an arms race? Is that because some people are more purist when they think of an arms race, you think of like, the, you think about the Cold War, you think right. about past arms races. Um, there, are, there are certain criteria around that, like the money that's being spent on like if you think of a, uh, a conventional type arms race, you know, both sides or multiple sides are investing millions, billions of dollars in increased spending on arms, on different weapon systems, on trying to keep up with that, you know, keeping a step ahead of the adversary. Uh, and you could argue two things. One, that you don't see that kind of spending today in AI, um, at least from the government, you do see spending uh, across the board, industry-wise, you see a very higher increase in spending. But, you know, some would argue that just by that definition, it's not really an arms race. And also, you can make the argument that AI itself is not a weapon. All right. AI is a tool um, that could be used to make weapons more lethal, more effective, whatever you want to say. But in itself, you know, AI is not a weapon. So, you know, again, by the textbook, there's some debate if there is. But let's just set all that aside, kind of to answer your question. Um, I would say leave out spending. There is definitely increased competition. OK, if we want to say that. Uh, so there is a race to for from a technology standpoint, and that's from industry and from um, uh, the government. And that's underway today. And we saw that in uh, we, we see that um, uh, kind of daily in kind of the advances and the money that's being spent in AI. But also um, you see that like in the national security report that you mentioned, you know, there there are a lot of studies going on, like how do we technologically stay advanced or, or ahead of our adversaries, or at least, you know, we've got to make sure that we kind of stay on top because at the end of the day, um, AI could be just like anything. AI could be used for many wonderful things. Like I was saying early telemedicine, you know, helping, I mean, excuse me, um, uh, medical applications. Uh, we saw this during COVID. You know, people often think about, wow, this va the vaccines that we have, they came out really rapidly. Some people say not fast enough, but how long uh, vaccines usually take? Uh, it came out very rapidly. A lot of that is due to some new techniques for, you know, the whole RNA type of a vaccine. But also there was a lot of AI. There's a lot of um, computer compute horsepower that went behind the analysis of a lot of these drugs, a lot of the virus, DNA strains and all that. 
So um, there is a, a lot of good, but then AI, this technology arms race, this competition could also be used by state actors to make and I, I, I even hesitate, and I, I sometimes I don't even like to think about it, but, you know, it could make war more um, lethal, more kinetic, more, um, let's just say, um, it, it can make weapon systems not out of control. We're not going to the Skynet world where things just take over. But what you could have is what we've seen today, which is it's kind of fascinating. You, we have actually seen AI being used in things like drones that can be sent to a target. Loiter yeah. around, just waiting for um, uh, scanning the system, waiting for his target to come in range, and then go and, and attack that target. So, so that arms race is to be able to um, not only have those same capabilities, but also counter those capabilities. And also in the cyber front, you know, how do we protect our our, our power grids? How do we protect our protect our water systems? Because uh, AI is being deployed in all of these ways to to attack us in multiple different ways. So, so and is that's AI where, being used to protect as well? Oh, definitely With being the used cybersecurity to and okay. Yeah, definitely so, being used offenses, offensively and defensively. So, Willie, you, you mentioned uh, and Carolyn mentioned also the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence's final report a couple of times um, mm-hmm. here, and I wanted to ask you if you had. Uh, a, a couple of takeaways from that? What would you yeah. say that they were? Yeah, and I think you mentioned it earlier, Carolyn. That is a pretty beefy document and a lot to go, go through. But um, at the end of the day, there were some some really good takeaways. And uh, honestly, there were some no-brainers, I, I guess, in there. Um, you know, number one in my mind, we, we've got to increase funding and research. And this kind of goes back to a question you you asked earlier about the question we just talked about with the arms race. And I mentioned earlier, one reason you might not want to call it an arms race is because a lot of money is not being put into it by the government. It's got to be be an arms race if there's money, if there's not money. I mean, that means (laughs) let's let's just cut to the chase. So there needs to be more funding of research, uh, public and um, private. I think one thing that from you know, my perspective that I found interesting that we had to we need to address the talent um, and diversity deficit um, in AI. And I think more importantly, we need to address how to develop kind of internal government talent kind of to meet these challenges. And and I say diversity because one thing is I mentioned like AI systems being able to to recognize targets, to be able to look for certain kind of things and understand patterns and then respond to those patterns. Well, um, some might argue that, you know, we need diversity um, in thinking in AI because some argue that um, systems, AI systems themselves aren't inherently biased because they're, they're programmed by humans. But if humans are programming some of their biases even indirectly into the system, they're not recognizing targets based on their they're not, you know, factoring really factoring things like skin tone and how you know people. Yeah, look. they are inherently biased because yeah. they're being programmed. By humans. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to be tactful about it, but at the end of the day, you know that that I think that is an important, a very important part of the uh, the report is that you know we need to have that diversity of talent, um, mm-hmm. and we need better, and we need more. I should say better. We need more talent um, um, in this field. Um, also, 
I found interesting that the report called out, and this is something kind of dear to me, is that, um, you know, they're calling out that agencies, the government, especially I think they're focused on the IC, needs to um, really start leveraging AI to more fully automate tasks. You know, things that are, you know, things that are repetitive, things that are prone to error, things that are, um, uh, that could be tasked well to an AI. Those things need to be looked at for more automation um, um, through AI systems. So those are some of the some of the bigger takeaways that I saw, uh, but also most importantly, uh, more industry outreach and, and partnering. Thank you, Willie. Next, we asked Lanye Ford, CEO of Arlo Solutions. What are your predictions? Like you've talked about a lot of things, like you said, like a cybersecurity integrator, cyber integrator. Um, what are your predictions for cybersecurity in the next year? You know, we're coming up on the end of the year. We love, we all love a good prediction. Yeah. And I, and I only, and again, I only speak to government. Um, what I hope happens um, in the next, you know, year, I hope that we see more of our cyber experts in the acquisition process, working with the acquisition teams to, you know, build out these statements of work and those type of things for these program offices. I, I would love to see that. Um, you know, I think that we'll continue to see more automation. You know, the the government wants speed. And I think cyber, um, from assess and authorize perspective, you know, um, is not a speedy process. So I think we're going to really start finding ways as our cyber workforce work with our developers to integrate, to really, you hear people say, bake it in, grow it in, but to really focus on doing that in real life, not just a cliche term. How do we do that? And I hope, and I'm seeing now that the cyber folks are working more with the developers and, you know, on the technology side. So, you know, uh, my prediction, again, I, I told you I'm optimistic is that <laughs> that is going to mature and we're going to start moving more of that cyber work to the left so that you're not trying to prove things to me via a document once we get to the end of this gravy train and you're all and you're baking that in and those you know the developers are understanding the, the responsibilities from a cyber perspective so you know I would love to see that I know we're going to see a lot of focus on um on supply chain, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that truly needs to be a focus in the government. Um, I see it from an internal perspective. I, I think it's a it's a real issue. Um, supply chain and software supply chain too. So I'm not just talking about hardware. Um, so I, I think, um, and based off the executive orders and those type of things that's coming out, I think it's going to be a major focus on um, supply chain. So I guess that would be, you know, my predictions. And I, I would hope to see from the Air Force and from DOD, I work mostly in the Air Force, but from DOD in perspective, I think we went through a, a, a time in uh, cyber where everything was decentralized. And so, you know, there were a lot of... Um, the following. Yeah. And so it was a lot of the workforce would decentralize. So Mm -hmm. each program has their own cyber and doing their own thing. They're spending their money on cyber how they want. I think it's time to centralize some of that. And I don't mean take, you know, take away um, the decision making, you know, from, you know, other agencies. But I do think that the workforce is slim. 
The workforce is slim. The workforce that understands cyber and cloud and DevSecOps is slim. And what the Air Force is doing and DOD in general is doing, they're paying all these different pockets you know, of cyber expertise. And I'm including myself. I'm a vendor, right? Um, and I'm in those pockets. But you're you're hiring all these different vendors to do cyber for all these different programs that's doing it differently, that truly don't understand DevSecOps. So they're learning on the government's dime too. Um, and there's no centralization of it. So I think if we centralize training, if we start centralizing some of this and then farm our expertise, our experts out to these different program offices, I think that will be a win too. So I, I hope to see, you know, more centralization in that as well. Yeah. Leverage each other's wisdom. Absolutely. So I heard acquisition, better, better processes up front, DevSecOps, yes. supply chain, and then centralize, which man, that's a shift, right? From that's 20 shift. years ago. It is. And I, we really shifted decentralized. Um, <laughs> yeah, we did. The workforce is so slim and it's a lot of competition. Once you start, we were just talking about even in the D.C. area, once that, you know, the Amazons are coming and, you know, there's competition in the, in the workforce. Um, and so people, the, the cyber workforce, because it's so popular right now, they have a lot of options. And so we have to find a way to use our workforce as smartly as possible. You know, it's interesting you, that you brought up this whole decentralization thing, because it seemed like, you know, when work working in the DOD arena that that's that was kind of the strength and i understand why they would do that right and and it even makes you want to think and i you know i don't think this has been a common thought that the maybe the civilian side of the house may be uh in some ways ahead of the game because they are more centralized in their approach on some of this stuff than the dod which maybe because of the nature of what they do they're very siloed you know i don't know no, I agree. And I think money funding um, makes a big difference. So I think in, in industry, you know, there's at the company, there's someone at the top that's controlling how they spend their funds. So, so that person is going to look at everything from an enterprise perspective. You know, DOD, you know, the way that the money is farmed out to the different um, internal to, uh, mm-hmm. to the government, to the different agencies that they can come up with their own solutions. Um, in their own workforce. And that's what they're doing. They, they're building solutions that work specifically for them. So I think once, yeah. and I think we do, we try our best to be more focused on an enterprise, but it's, um, it's tough because we're looking at a, a diverse um, need from someone who may need, you know, from a, someone who needs to work on, you know, CE, you know, and, 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 you know, may work on the air conditions, you know, for DOD, someone else may be focused on jets, Someone else, you know, on, you know, providing typical IT. So, you know, their needs are so vast and different that it's hard to centralize that from a funding and a solutions perspective. So, it, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but I think that where we could centralize is that cybersecurity support. Um, because that support shouldn't change. Whether I'm assessing and authorizing, I, I say all the time, you can put anything in front of me. I can I can show you how to assess and authorize, you know, again, code going to the F-35 or, you know, how do we assess and authorize your uh, air conditioning system? Um, because if you have the right framework, and even if I don't understand the, the technology per se, that's when I collaborate. Thank you, Lanye. Our next prediction is from Captain Jasmine Furtado, of the US Space Force. I wanna to get to what predictions you have for technology in 2022. 
So I do think that we're going to continue to see growth in AI capabilities, um, and not just within the DoD, but obviously just everywhere. I think we'll see a lot of a lot more personalized services or better personalized services that we see in like finance, medical, legal things that are things that are more for you. So you no longer need to go through a, a middleman, or you no longer have to go through trial and error to get and to converge on the right answer. You can get it faster, and these services are a lot more available and easily available because the barrier to access is a lot lower because they're technological solutions rather than people and process solutions. I also see, think we're going to see an increase in no-code no capabilities, so people able to access uh, access software or tools without having to know how to code. Uh-huh. They can have better user interfaces. I think there's, we're going to continue to see technology with increasingly better user interfaces and allow for people to be more like data-minded without having to have that formal background. And I think all of this just lends itself to more transparency and literacy when it comes to data uh, because we can no longer afford to have people that are like, oh, I'm not technical. Mm-hmm. We are in this day and age where that that's no longer something that we can afford to have. Everyone needs to be technical and be treated as an analyst in their own right. Uh, we're we're in we're moving into this into this stage in society where everyone has to and everyone produces data. Everyone needs to ingest data. Uh, everyone needs to process it in their own way and. As we continue going into next year, we're just going to continue to see services that emphasize that. How do you think the, how do you feel the Air Force, maybe Space Force, you're too new to it, uh, prioritizes this? The data transparency and literacy are like these sorts of tools. Yeah. I think that they're asking for it. <laughs> they're, they're definitely prioritizing it because like I said, these conversations are very difficult to have without these things because we can't, we can't just people, people need to be able to like speak that same language and they can't do that without these, these tools, these no code mm-hmm. capabilities, these visualizations. Like we need to have people go in and, do be able to do discovery into the data for themselves. Mm-hmm. We can't continue to just have, oh, you just will just present uh, something to you about the status every month and make you can make decisions. People need to be able to go in themselves and figure things out for yeah. themselves. And when we treat everyone as an analyst in their own right, like it's becoming very apparent very fast that the the limiting factor in a lot of these conversations is that people don't have access to all the information that they need. I'm going to give a sneak peek to a survey that we just completed among government IT people. And one of their number one pains was the lack of expertise in in these very things that you're talking about, Jasmine, just that, you know, people are coming in, well, I'm not technical enough to understand what the data means. Like that was one of the highest um, pains that these IT managers that responded to the survey uh talked about. That is not surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. Now we will hear from Raven Manuel, Senior Application Developer at the National Museum of African American History and Culture and Army Veteran. As we approach 2022, 
Tell us what you think the predictions for technology are going to be this coming year. I think that there is going to be a focus on, so do you want me to tell you in cultural institution or in, in general? Whatever you want. Yeah, in general, <laughs> in general. Both. Yeah, yeah. Both. So, yeah. yeah. There's a, um, there is a lot happening out there in technology and there's uh, like quantum computing is is something mm-hmm. there. A lot of focus on AI and AI ops and mm-hmm. ML and ML ops whatever. Um, Those things are what technologists are focused on. Um, I actually belong to a group and we're looking at um, Hyperledger and not Bitcoin per um, per se, but blockchain technology and how um, cultural institutions, I'm thinking about it, like how can a cultural institution leverage blockchain technology to track its assets and its and the objects? How can we even use Bitcoin? Maybe the government is not ready for that, um, <laughs> but to use Bitcoin to be able to procure things or to let people buy things. Um, for um, technology, there's also this push in the accessibility realm is how do we leverage um the existing technology that we have to make experiences for um, people with the various disabilities, all disabilities. Because for me, when you, people say disabilities, they think of people who can't maybe who are, are not have no mobility or can't have visual issues or um, hearing, but there are other disabilities that are out there like cognitive disabilities. Um, mm-hmm. How do we use these technologies to um, give them similar experiences because it will never be the same, like a similar enhanced experience in cultural spaces. I believe that um, everything that I'm hearing is going towards, um, like from application development, is how to take these monolithic applications and make them into microservices because that's all the buzz right now. Um, And so that's where those things are going. And my space in the museum specifically, it's how do I take um, mobile technology, things that can only be done on a mobile device and make it so that we can have interactives that are contactless. Um, And one of the things that I'm actually thinking about is um, for the application that I'm building with this other gent, one of the challenges is that taking, like if a person doesn't have a particular um, version of um, iOS or Android, they're not going to be able to um, engage. So what can we do? And I thought, well, I can use a Raspberry Pi and because they're small and blocky, but who wants to steal that from a place, right? <laughs> is, that, is that something you can put in your pocket? So how can I actually use a Raspberry Pi and get the uh, same experience as I can on a mobile device, which is a challenge because um, the mobile de- the mobile um, manufactured devices, they're integrated. So when you want to do AR or VR, it's integrated with the hardware mm-hmm. um, and mobile gives it, it has certain libraries and the, an Android, I mean, uh, a Raspberry Pi is pretty much a desktop, right? And so it's just an operating system and it's um, divorced from the library. So it's trying to figure out how to use technology to overcome those particular challenges. Very cool. I love the repurposing of like the blockchain ideas to help help what you guys are doing and the idea of using Bitcoin, even though we know government is not going there right now, but there's certain areas where you guys could use it. Thank you so much, Raven. 
And last but not least, we asked Tracy Bannon, Senior Principal, Software Architect, and DevOps Strategic Advisor at MITRE. Okay, Tracy, um, thank you for taking time today to talk about your 2022 predictions. So let's just dive right in. Lay it All on. All right. Okay. So are we going to see new tech? Probably, but I'm not worried about the this brand new on the horizon tech. What I'm worried about, what I'm thinking about is what's going to happen with the tech that just emerged. So we're th- talking about AI and ML. What is going to happen with that? Well, there's the impact to the end user. It's going to be used in more and more and more ways. Think about the machine learning that's going to happen just in a few days when Delta starts to do facial recognition uh, in the airport in Atlanta. So we've got to be thinking about the impact of AIML on the end user. Now, AIML um, is really important to data scientists, right? It's really important to the person who wants the answers. But once they create those algorithms, uh, we also are going to have to be worried about how do we operationalize that new algorithm? That gets us into data ops. Third thing that we have to be concerned about with AIML, concerned about meaning focusing on, is how do we leverage it for operations? I can use it to understand cyber threats that are coming in. I can use it to understand how my environment is self-healing or not self-healing. And there's even some new technology that's being worked through, and I can't remember um, the name of the company offhand, but they have a scanning tool that'll allow me to take a look at what the developers are doing and predict where what some of the errors are, um, AIML, predict where some of those errors are to help them avoid false positives with some of the scanning that they're doing so they can stay focused on addressing where the code problems are, um, as opposed to where their code smells that they could avoid. So it's going to be the application, rapid application of AIML, and we have to really be intentional about how we do it. Um, Second thing that's going to be huge, already is, but will continue to be, is security, especially AppSec, application security. So dynamic um, application scanning, DAST, is going to be huge. couple of different vendors in that in that area. You know, my favorite um, tends to be Dynatrace because they run ahead with this. But there are a lot of good, smart people who are doing a lot of good, smart stuff in that space. We've got to be focusing on not just scanning of the static code, but understanding it real time in its place as it's running. There's a concept called SBOM that goes into the security aspect as well. SBOM means uh, software bill of materials. What the heck is that? Well, software bill of materials really is, how did I get that open source? When I'm looking at it now, where did it come from? Who made contributions to it? Maybe it's not open source. Maybe it's coming from a vendor, but understanding who touched it along the way. The pedigree is really important, especially when we're thinking about national security. Is that possible with open source? Like, is it possible to really see the pedigree with open source? Yeah, you can see whoever makes the. If we're if we're leveraging some of the tools, if I go out into to GitHub, GitLab, and I'm using that as a tool, you can see when I commit a piece of software. You can see the line of code that I commit, and you can evaluate it. So I could go out and I could say, oh, Tracy Bannon's not a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at what she's the code that she's committed, and let's understand it. Let's understand what was the intention of that piece of code. So I don't um, want I don't want to rat hole too much, but I, in my mind, I mean, I don't deal with open source code, but I imagine that you can have millions contributing. Mm-hmm. So even though you can see it, it sounds like 
massive log files to me? Like, is it really even practical? Well, that's where I, I depend on industry to do smart things. So mm-hmm. you look at tide lift, um, you looked at, at um, sonotype. There are groups who are watching. They're, they're watching. Um, uh, so let them okay. watch, work with them, um, depending on what your scenario and what your context are, leverage what they have. But it is going to be very important. There is a definition of what an SBOM should be, a definition of what that, that mm-hmm. list of, of touches needs to look like. And that's going through, I believe, NIST right now. So it's, they're, they're creating a standard out of it. So it isn't something that we're going to just invent on a case-by-case basis, but there'll be national and international buy-in because this is important to everybody. Everybody, regardless as to your nation, regardless as to your intent, you want to understand anything you're consuming, where it came from, right? It's like organic food. I want to go back to the source. Is that really farm to table? Did you really? I I need to know whose hands were on it along the way. Um, I think there there are two more things that I'll quick toss at you. I know you want to kind of like five or 10 minutes. Um, Data virtualization continues to be important from my vantage point, looking at it as a tool and a technique. We know that data fabrics um, are a rage, uh, and it's important to understand our data is all over the place. It's like our money. I don't put all of my money in one place in a tin can in the yard because if somebody finds it, they get it all. If I realize that my money can be invested in different places and I have a view of it, I now have kind of my, my monetary portfolio, and I know how each piece um, is earning interest. I know what's happening with it. Our data is our currency and our data can be handled the same way. I can allow it to be distributed so that I have data available to me from APIs, from databases. It could be from other cloud sources. It could be from other organizations. I can make it available as though it's all together, but virtually. And that allows me to have much tighter control over who's accessing it, how they're accessing it, and be able to keep it actually quite safer. So data virtualization, um, the final thing that I predict that is, we're seeing it already, but it's really going to be continue to become important in 2022, architecture. And you know, you knew I was going to say that, Carolyn. You knew I was going to say this. Honestly, um, I didn't, Tracy. Like when we were talking before, you surprised me with this one. So I'm, I'm, let, keep keep going here. All right. So why is architecture going to become important? Haven't we always been doing that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we allowed our zealotry, right? Whenever we learn something new. We just start to do it whole hog. We go down the rabbit hole and we stop asking why. So let's say that um, I run into a friend of mine and and he's lost a couple of pounds. And I say, how'd you lose that weight? He said, well, you know what? I went keto and that's how I lost weight. And I go, yeah, I need to lose some weight. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to, I'm going to do that. doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to cut out all my carbohydrates and I'm going to eat bacon all the time. And I'm going to do all of these things, but without understanding the impact of my body, without understanding my own personal situation, that kind of happened with architecture when it came to agility early on in the architecture or in the agility movement, uh, there was a, a trend where people would say, you know what? Architecture just needs to emerge as you go. What they intended by that was to say, 
architecture should not be two years of upfront, hyper detailed um, requirements and everything being completely netted out. That's waterfall. We need to make decisions based on risk. But there was a kind of a pivot that said, just let it emerge. The development teams will figure it out as they go. That doesn't really work in big enterprise. That doesn't really work in defense. That doesn't really work in government. It doesn't work in a lot of places. So what we're seeing is the reawakening of architecture as something intentional, but with a little bit of a different spin on it. An architect isn't somebody sitting over in an ivory tower. They're on the floor with the developers. They're with the engineers. They're elbow to elbow. Um, a friend of mine, Ken Corliss, over at Deloitte, uh, wrote a paper. I think it was called um, Architecture Awakening about a year ago. And it really talks about the fact that the profession has to evolve, but we have to refocus on architecture. So I know that's not directly a cool tech. But I predict we're going to have to focus on that. So AIML and all of the glory of all of the different ways it gets applied, um, AppSec, data virtualization, and architecture. Those are Bannon's four for 2022. Yeah, what you said about architecture, um, you know, your analogy to the keto diet, we, we have this pendulum and we swing so far. And so maybe in 2022, we're going to see a recentering, hopefully. I mean, moderation? You think? Prag pragmatic moderation? <laughs> Wait, you mean we're going to take a step back and ask why and understand what we're doing and think about it and not just glom on? I think we have to. I do pendulum swing all the time. That's the nature mm -hmm. of the hype cycle. The problem with the technology hype cycle in particular is how expensive it is because mm -hmm. we quickly run in a certain direction and we don't ask why. We just start to copycat. They had success. Therefore, I'll have success. Well, maybe. Or maybe we look at why they did what they did and we apply it. Mm -hmm. So, And that's going to be the same with all of the, the other things that I talked about. There's going to be a lot of learning that's necessary in the coming year. I uh, hope to see a lot of community building and, quite frankly, a lot of conversations like what you're hosting right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us on Tech Transforms about your 2022 predictions. You, you betcha. Thanks. A special thank you to all of our guests for your incredible insight. We're looking forward to some exciting things in the coming year. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.